Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Enfleshed by Watch and Walk Ministry. Enfleshed is aimed at helping everyone, um, all of us, to embody the teachings of Scripture. My name is Ebenezer Edujenfi, and I'm so glad that you've been able to join us. Uh, you've been able to join us this afternoon. Today, I'm here with my uh, regular panel members, uh, Mariah Humphreys, Satruet graduate, and, and she also works with uh, the Campaign and Development Communications at Baylor University. And I also have Jackson Adama, a doctoral candidate um, in theology and ethics at Duke University, North Carolina. And I also have Eric Amuzu uh, doing um, his PhD in church music at Baylor University, and then Philip Thomas, um, is a master's um, student in church music at Baylor University. I'm so glad that you've been able to join us. And uh, today we are on lesson eight, and it's been a great time, um, enlightening, edifying moment uh, with the Word of God. Uh, we started. I always want to just give a, a brief, um, 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 I give, give a, an overview of what we've been doing. We started with uh, John chapter one. And we learned that the word of God is a person, is full of grace and truth. And uh, we jumped to Matthew chapter 5. We looked at the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. We've been looking at Matthew chapter 5 for the past um, seven you know, weeks now. Uh, we've learned a lot. And last week we dealt with uh, the issue of lust and an adultery. We learned that lust begins, I mean, adultery begins with the, in the heart. I mean, when we lust... Um, after a woman in our hearts. And that's one, one thing that we, we learned. And also, when we talked about the issue of divorce, um, of course, we, had, we understood and we acknowledged that it's a very thorny and challenging um, discussion. But one thing that we learned was that in a case of abusive relationship, um, the pastor or the leader who has um, someone who actually talks to someone in a situation like that, it's very important to pray for discernment uh, as Christian leaders, to pray for discernment, to preserve. Uh, the life of the one who is being abused, and also honor uh, marriage, or I mean, value the sacredness of marriage. So it was a great time, and we love the tension. And I believe that each each person learned a lot, and we are grateful uh, for that. And as of today, we're going to look at Matthew chapter five, verse thirty-eight to forty-eight. Um, I, I after looking at it a couple of times, I I can't say. I mean, for me, it's the, the most challenging um, part. Of this sermon, I mean, this series, and um, I trust that God will help us and the Holy Spirit will help us to do justice to this particular passage. So we're going to look at Matthew chapter five, verse thirty-eight to uh, forty-eight. But before I ask my friend uh, Philip to do the reading for us, um, let let me pray for us. In the name of Jesus, Lord, we bless you for this time. We thank you for teaching us um, all these things, all these weeks. Uh, we are going to study again, and my, our prayer is that you open our eyes that we can see wonderful things in your word and also apply uh, what we see even to our lives in the name of Jesus. Amen. So Philip, Matthew yes. chapter 5, verse 38 to 48. Yes, um, here says a word. Uh, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. 
Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, you do not turn away. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward, reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Thank you very much. You shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. I'd like to start with you, Philip. Yeah. Um, now let's, let's look at verse 38, which says that uh, you have heard it was said that an eye for an eye, and it moves on to the fact that you shouldn't resist an evil person. I mean, 38 to 42. I must say, uh, help us understand or analyze this particular part. What is Jesus trying to say um, to all of us, uh, especially when he talks about do not resist an evil person? Yeah, that's a good question, Ebenezer. So I'll just start out by saying that um, uh, we were just discussing earlier how Jesus' teachings in, in Matthew 5, there's a progression from being really difficult to being nearly outrageous and absurd if you just use your rational mind. And I would imagine the audiences uh, listening to this would have gone, been shocked at hearing even his teachings on adultery and divorce and now being nearly outraged. But the reason being is the teachings here actually really go contrary to human instinct and nature. Uh, because if someone even name calls us, we want to like give back. And imagine Jesus is saying, if someone slaps you, which is such an extreme provocation, an insult actually. And, and, and in that situation, Jesus is saying to turn the other cheek. So here, to just set, set a kind of context before I interpret it, I want to um, look at the argument as to whether this should be interpreted literal or rhetorically. Um, and many, many people would say this is a rhetorical statements that Jesus are making, but actually, if you take it in context to what Jesus is speaking to the Jewish audience in context of Roman occupation, um, and actually in how he, he says, do not resist evil, and then he gives specific, precise examples that his audience would have really related with, it seems that uh, these are almost near literal truths and not just hyperbole. But that doesn't mean it applies in every context as well. So let me just say three things about what it means to, uh, to not resist and to resist. So Jesus says, do not resist evil. And in that, he says, do not take, I, the way I understand it is, do not take the law into your own hands. Mm. Uh, but I would also say we are to resist evil in the sense that we follow the law of the land. So there is a balance right there. Mm. Uh, it, two sides that are just sort of balancing each other out. We, we do not take the law into our own hands. If someone harms us, insults us, we don't go back on our own trying to get back at that person. But if someone really causes us harm, which is, according to the law of the land, a crime, and it must be reported, then the law of the land should take its course. And I think that is biblical as well. And that is another way we resist um, evil. So Romans 13, Paul commands us to obey the laws of the land. Mm. 
Um, and I think that that is a biblical path to follow, but we don't try to take justice on our own hands. That's what Jesus is saying. Uh, so, but there's also time to resist the law when the law is not enforced uh, fairly. You know, we were, I think just before the, the program started, Jackson was talking about Martin Luther King. And uh, he's one of those examples who stood against injustice and evil. Because not all men and women were seen in the image of God. Mm. And so he had to resist that evil. But again, he chose the biblical way. Mm. The way of Jesus, basically. Mm. So that is a time to resist, but also to resist in a way that is honoring the word and also resist when uh, children and women, when they are victims of attack, I think it's important to, to resist. I don't think any man here who would see a, a, a child or a woman being attacked would just stand back and watch. That doesn't, and I don't think Jesus is really saying that either. So I think there are moments to resist and uh, we have to use discernment. Okay. Um, one more thing I'll just say is that peacemaking does come at a cost. You see in each of these examples, we bear the brunt, not just once, but Jesus is saying, go the extra mile or take the next slap, the next, you know, uh, insult or whatever. So Jesus is saying you have to become vulnerable and peacemaking means you have to make yourself really vulnerable. Mm. And again, according to the discernment of the situation. Mm. And finally, uh, I would say outrageous grace is the principle that overrides the need for justice. And I say outrageous grace, I coined that term specifically because what Jesus is asking us to do, it's not just mere grace. It's, it's just something above and beyond. It is divine. Yeah. Um, and that's why I say this is grace that we need to give in the highest measure to anyone who wrongs us, you know, in the, way, in the words we speak and the deeds we do in our posture. So I say respond with so much grace as far as possible and as far as you're in the right to do so, and it's biblical, you respond with grace so that the other person is, is almost shocked and stunned by your response. And that is, that is what Jesus is saying. You shock and stun the person into conviction okay. and reconciliation. Okay, great. Thanks a lot um, for that. Jack, um, any comment on that? Yeah. Um, um, so I'm sorry I, I missed out on the first bit. I was having challenges with my connection. Um, so with regards to the text, um, I, it's really complex, um, and I, I bet uh, Philip probably alluded to that. Um, for many reasons, it's, it's complex for many reasons. And in the first place, um, the passage employs images that are just not familiar to us. Um, as 21st century readers, uh, for example, what would it mean for us to, in our context, what would it mean for us to walk an extra mile uh, with our adversary? Um, also, there is the issue of pastoral sensitivity and responsibility in our cultural and historical moment. Um, so interpreter literally, some have erroneously suggested this passage calls for quiet and content um, acceptance to the systems and forces of oppression. Um, but as readers and interpreters, and interpreters of scripture, we need to be aware that passages such as these um, have been historically employed by religious oppressors to shame uh, the enslaved and oppressed um, who hope and work towards liberation. So the idea is that, look, to resist oppression is um, in a way to 
go up against uh, God ordained established order. Mm-hmm. Um, as it were, that's what people have been using this text for. But we need to take into consideration the fact that Jesus' mission is to provide us with abundant life. And it is in the spirit of the abundant life that Christ gives to all, which includes liberation, that we must reject such oppressive literal interpre- interpretations of this passage. The word we translate resist in the verse 39 can be understood and indeed was often used in Jesus' day to mean an aggressive, violent counteraction. Um, Jesus' call on his disciples to not resist an evil person is a clear rejection of violence as a means to attain justice um, and reconciliation. As I've said, Jesus' call to the disciples to embody conciliatory and nonviolent ethics was not a quiet and passive acquiescence to the oppressor or the enemy. Um, Jesus' ethics are a kind of active and subversive boldness that refuses to return violence for violence. Uh, This is understood in the determination to offer the other cheek when one is slapped. In those days, a backhanded slap with the right hand across the right cheek was the way to admonish and so humiliate inferiors. Uh, Offering the other cheek presents an invitation to try again as if to say, I refuse to allow you to humiliate me. Uh, giving my cloak as well as tunic results in embarrassing the suitor with one's nakedness. A Roman soldier could routinely impress civilians to carry his pack for a mile. One could confound such a soldier by going along for a second mile. For, from a somewhat different angle, Giving graciously to the borrower signal solidarity among the oppressed, it was like a way of saying, we are in this together. Thus, what seems, uh, what seemingly appears to be a call to become doormats in the face of evil and oppression is actually a powerful and active ethics to break the cycle of oppression and violence. And I think Martin Luther King Jr., Mahatma Gandhi, and Nelson Mandela are notable examples of the active, bold, and effectiveness of nonviolence in breaking the yoke of oppression. Yeah. As we go further on in our discussion, I'll circle back to the example of Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, by this point, I think it is enough to underscore the fact that Jesus' death on the cross, which many would have thought symbolized weakness in the face of oppression, was rather a bold affirmation of the penultimate and indeed finite nature of the power of the Roman Empire. Um, although the empire crucified Christ, it did not have the ultimate word on the life of Christ, okay. as the resurrection demonstrates. So in summary, Jesus' words are meant to inspire, not to prescribe quiet acceptance to the mm. conditions of oppression. Yeah. Doesn't want us to be passive, right? Yeah. And yes. Thanks a lot um, for that. And then Philip also brought that um, idea about uh, respecting the system, the authority, the penal system, uh, even in our bid to uh, live peaceably with people. And of course, in Romans, Paul talks about as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. You know, and based on what uh, Jack, you said, uh, one thing that I can say is that we are supposed to be light of the world, right? We are, Jesus made us light of the world. And so the life, which is the life of Christ, actually shouldn't be dimmed or uh, impeded uh, by circumstances. Mm-hmm. So the light, which we have already talked about, uh, overcoming unrighteousness, injustice, and all that, 
uh, should not be dimmed by whatever happens, you know, outside it. It actually shines brighter in darkness. Mm -hmm. And so that's what Jackie was saying. Like, even in our bid uh, not to resist an evil, we're actually overcoming evil with good mm -hmm. and not being overcome by, mm -hmm. by evil, as Romans mm -hmm. 21 says. Mm -hmm. uh, thanks a lot. Uh, let me move to um, Mariah. And then let's, let, me, let me just ask you your, your thoughts on that. And also, there's this other part that talks about praying and blessing uh, your enemies, as it, and uh, loving your enemies. Uh, what, what can you say about that? So I don't like this passage very well because it's really I like your sincerity. Yeah, yeah I don't, I don't want to do it, and I don't want to um, have to live this out. So this was um, kind of a, a challenge to me to have to go through this. So thank you, Ebenezer, for bringing that to me. Um, <laughs> but it, this is difficult, right? I mean, it, the part of, I think it's in verse 44, talks about loving your neighbor. Mm -hmm. is, is a quote from Leviticus 19, um, I think verse 18, where he talks about do not seek um, revenge or bear a grudge, um, but love your neighbor as yourself. Um, and you won't find hate for your enemy in the Hebrew, t in the Hebrew text either. So the scripture is pretty clear on this, but it's still hard to, to grasp and to think about and to kind of um, contemplate. But for me, it comes down to when I read this, it comes down to because God loves them just as much as he loves me. Mm -hmm. And it's such an easy phrase. And we, you know, talk about it from behind the pulpit and we preach about it. And it is hard to live out. And I don't want to live this out, but it's what I'm called to do, especially when the hurt against um, me is deep and it's personal and it feels very, um, uh, um, dehumanized um, in many times and especially when it's purposeful I think when it comes to attack on my character or my faith my family who I am as a person um, those are times that I want to get in someone's face and I want to belittle them just as much as they've hurt me and I want to make sure that they feel that hurt because I've been hurt and I want them to know that I've been hurt and that I'm not going to give you know give them that satisfaction and I always have to remind myself that as a follower of Jesus Christ, mm. when I'm called to replace that eye for an eye of love and blessing and prayer, as you said, um, that's what I'm called to do. And I don't want to do that. And that's hard because I want justice in my timing and in my way. And there's times that God just doesn't do it in the right timing for me. And I'm like, you slow, right? Yeah. Okay. I want, I want, I want this to come now. Um, but you know, I think Romans 12 is also, I think um, uh, Phil talked about Romans 13 or 14 um, and Romans 12 is a very good complimentary passage for this too. And it talks about vengeance is God's and it's not mine. And I'm always having to be reminded of that. And, you know, God loved this world and Jesus was sent for me. And I accept that fully. I embrace it. I live it. And I can't forget that he also came equally for my enemy and I'm supposed to love him like that. And that's very difficult. And that's a big challenge for me. Um, so this passage is difficult, but there's a bigger picture mm. and it's not about this side of life, but the goal is that kingdom of God. And the goal is the eternal 
and being obedient in this passage, even as difficult as it is, it's one of the most difficult passages for me to constantly remember because I'm one of those that's, I'm quick thinking, I'm witty with my words and I can be very sharp with my words. And I, I want people to know that I'm that way because I want to be able to show them. Um, and so I always have to remind myself that following this passage through, um, I think it was, you know, grace and humility was brought up, um, you know, in the, in the midst of um, oppression and everything else. It, I have to remind myself that I am part of this passage and I'm called to live this out um, through my life, no matter how, I want to react. Um, but yeah, that I, I think that's kind of what I took from, um, you know, I just, I want to bear that grudge and I'm called to do the opposite and it's, and it's difficult, but it's what I'm called to do. It's a statement. It's not a, it's not an and or based on your situation. It's Jesus is stating this. And so I've got to remember that on a regular basis. It's more like an imperative, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, humbling and imperative from Jesus. Uh, yes. Uh, your thoughts yeah let me let me just thank the whole panel for i mean making it clear that this passage is definitely not something very easy to just go through i mean looking at some of the statements made in there i mean it's really really difficult and challenging but um i also add a little bit of what i think you know um let me begin by stating that um in our world today it is easy to label you know anything based on our impression of the thing right so the lens from which we understand a thing um, influences our judgment of that thing. Um, either it's good or evil, either it's truth or untruth, either it's a friend or an enemy. So according to the law from the passage, you must love your enemy. Uh, but I think um, Maria alluded a little bit to the other part of it. And hate, you must love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. But the thing is, I don't think that the original law talked about hating your enemies. Um, what this statement doesn't clarify uh, is who qualifies as your neighbor or your enemy. Mm-hmm. The, the, the Bible didn't say anything like that. Uh, so the danger here becomes the lens from which you interpret it, right? So for the Jewish teachers, um, this means loving those of their own country, mm-hmm. nation, and religion. Also those they were happy to regard as their friends. Mm-hmm. As if it was not enough, they even added another part. Uh, they also went ahead to voluntarily inferred what God never explicitly stated in the passage, adding that you should hate your enemy. So love your neighbor because you can be able to choose that person who you like and all that. Then you can easily be able to you know, hate the person you don't like or who doesn't fit into the person who would be your friend. So by doing this, they determined whom they actually considered as enemies. Mm-hmm. And then they also went ahead to subject God's command to an interpretation based on their own traditions which is very dangerous. But another thing too, you need to realize that it is proper to recognize Israel, you know, having so many enemies during their exodus, right? So however, what I think is that God's support for Israel in the conquest of Canaan was more to make, you know, room for them on the land and put fear in their enemies rather than make enemies of the tribes they defeated. So, um, of course, it is not easy. I mean, anger can sometimes make you win your battles, when channeled properly, but Jesus sees differently. So he wants us to love our enemies. That, you know, with this message, he was trying to communicate it clearly that if you do that, you are actually living like your heavenly father. Hmm. Now, Jesus himself was a product of this rule. He was a reconciler who loved the stranger and those who chose 
you know, against the love which he offered, those whom he came to die for. Let's not also forget that man, you know, after the fall has been so very bad, okay? And certainly, man could fit the description of an enemy to God, mm. right? But still, he chose to send, you know, his son to redeem us. Mm. So the, the question here is, why bless them? Why love people? It's not easy, like Maria said. But first, it defeats the pervading roots of bitterness that suppresses the good of our heart and conscience. Mm. Um, I don't know of anybody who, by the first thought of his enemy, smiles immediately and wishes them well. Mm. You know, best case scenario is you get a smirk. Um, let me emphasize that, you know, this rule is for our own good. An ill emotion like bitterness, when it lingers for a long time, what does it do? It drags its victims to death or to the grave. On the other hand, a heart driven by love subsumes every bond of destruction. So in other words, what am I trying to say? If you love your enemies and you pray for them, you are choosing life. Mm. You are choosing health mm. and a goodwill by doing that act. Mm. And then secondly, you must also understand that this is a part of our identity in Christ or our identity as a Christ follower. So the passage likens a person who obeys this principle to God himself, who causes what? Sun to shine on both the wicked and the good. One thing I've realized about retaliation is that um, it is a primal trait of those who live by the world's principles, those whom, you know, the, the, the love of God is not in. Let me also clarify here that this doesn't necessarily mean that you should side with or become partner in crime to somebody who doesn't subscribe to your fundamental beliefs as a Christian. You know, um, the truth is that we must not entertain or become complacent in validating a person that is openly wicked or profane. It is also dangerous to put our trust in somebody who is known to be continually deceitful or evil. But the greater good here is to pursue our respect for humanity and, and to honor his creation. So let me conclude by saying that it is significant to also know something. This is, this is really crucial, I, I think. This is very crucial. It is significant to know who your enemy is, truly is or really is. I think that most of us today, we are fighting the wrong enemy. We are creating the wrong enemies. And let me, make, let me also make this, let me state this emphatically that the, the, the enemy is certainly not the one society has helped you to label through your lens of sociocultural, political, or even religious ideologies. And most of the times I think that that is where we look to, but it's a different, you know, um, approach altogether. Mm, wow. Thanks a lot. Very insightful, um, Eric. Um, let me come back to you, Philip, again. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now we are looking at praying and you know doing all these things for our enemies. And one one question that came to mind is that what, what really happens when we we choose to obey these instructions? What happens first to us and to our enemies? Um, what can you say about that? Yeah. Um, thanks for the comments, Eric. And I think to just sort of build on what he said again. We have to identify who our enemy is, and then we must act according to that, you know, with, with the help of the Holy Spirit, with grace and so forth. I think when we follow this teaching, two things happen. Like for the enemy, again, they, they need to be convicted. And I think the, there's power in the teaching of Jesus where he heightens the requirement to such an extent where he says, you need to follow this, but... There is power in it, and it has power to stun the enemy, shock the enemy, and to subdue the enemy in a sense that they are won over. 
So that's the ultimate goal is that, that we don't want to make, we don't want to multiply our enemies. We don't want to just keep them in that same state, but we want to win them over for the cause of Christ. But in that process, we are also made vulnerable. And I think in, in I'll just give one small anecdote or a, um, I relate something from the life of a particular missionary family that might shed a, a particular angle of insight into this, that um, there were a couple of missionaries, Australian missionaries, you ever heard of uh, Graham Staines? There were Australian missionaries who went to India to work with uh, lepers in a particular state in a remote part of uh, India. And uh, they, they worked with the lepers to give them, you know, they, they were, lepers were shunned. They were not valued in society. They were outcasts. So they brought them in, gave them a home, gave them a trade, um, gave them uh, medical care and all of that, all of those things. But they worked in an environment which was hostile for the most part because it was a fanatical Hindu climate and culture and people. And many thought these, uh, these missionaries were in the job or the, you know, the act of converting people and they didn't like it. And uh, what happened one day was when um, the husband and two children of um, this family went on for a religious retreat to a nearby village. Uh, they were sleeping in the Jeep and what happened at night, midnight, this mob came, barricaded the Jeep and set it on fire. So they killed, um, they killed her husband and her two children. Um, so what happened after that was there was a lot of grief for her. Obviously, she loses someone very close to her. And then later on, she comes out on media and says, I forgive the killers. Uh, that itself is, again, uh, it's, it's a Christian way of forgiveness. As Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Um, so she went on with forgiveness. And not only that, uh, but also, I would also add to this that she let the law take its course. She did not say just spare them. The law had to take its course. They had to be convicted, those who in the mob, you know. But she continued to stay in that hostile environment, carrying on the work of her husband, taking care of the lepers, you know, giving them a home, making them feel valued. And even though the fact that many of them were Hindus and she never forced them into conversion or anything, and she never went back, she never retreated from this work. And I think I'm, I say this because uh, we need to understand that, you know, as Eric said, we, we don't label the enemy in terms of, I see the, the pendulum swinging in today's Christianity between like activism and evangelism. So we think through activism, we identify our enemies and then we need to do certain things and believe certain things. But I think, you know, when I see the life of Jesus, there was a kind of activism, but it was more in the way, in the, the way he lived and the principles that he followed. Mm -hmm. So we are to speak up against a lot of injustices and things like that. Mm -hmm. But there is, I think, a call to obedience that um, where... Uh, it's not just for missionaries. I think there's a call to obedience where we respond with grace, with so much of grace to whoever we, uh, you know, we need to, again, biblically discern who our enemy is. And, and even those who try to oppose us or try to suppress us in any way that mm. we would have the strength and courage in Jesus to respond mm. um, as he would. Yeah.
thanks a lot. Yeah, Jack. <laughs> yeah, it, again, it, it doesn't get uh, any easier with uh, some of the uh, things that Jesus said specifically concerning our relationship with with our enemies. Like praying for those who persecute us is an act of, but praying for those who persecute us is an act of resisting the hatred that animates the systems of oppression. Again. I, I want us to take our our perspective away from that kind of passive passivity that we are talking about. So, pray for those who um, hate us and persecute us. It's really an act of resistance, and in a way, I I can just think of the story of um, Dylan Roof and how he uh, brutally murdered a lie. Um, some of the parishioners of the Emmanuel Church in South Carolina um, about five years ago. Um, if you look at how the story unfolded, uh, he went into uh, the fellowship hall where the parishioners, parishioners were having a Bible study. Uh, they welcomed him, uh, although obviously being white, um, <laughs> he was completely he was different, like at least his pigment, skin pigmentation from the people, but they welcomed him anyway. Um, and according to Dylan's uh, motives for, for the dastardly murder, uh, he wanted to start a race war. Uh, he wanted by killing these African-American parishioners uh, for them to also people to take up arms from the African-American community. And then that will, kind of trigger a race war here in, in America. But when people reflected on the fact that the parishioners welcomed him, they extended a hand of fellowship to him, knowing very well that mm, it's pretty odd to have uh, a, a young white guy uh, coming into the worship space someone that they they had never seen yet they extended a hand of fellowship to that person and 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 to Dylan and that act of love and fellowship motivated people to say that wait a minute we need to uh take confidence uh from the hand of fellowship that the, the slain parishioners extended to Dylan and embody that ethic of love mm -hmm. and so one after the other the family members um, of Dylan's uh, victims just came and said that we forgive you. May God have mercy on you. Um, it, that tells you how that act of love mm. is far from passive. It's actually defeated this white supremacist motive of starting a race uh, war. Now, praying for those who persecute us is also an act of self-purification. Uh, for the oppressed or victims of injustice. Here I am taking a cue from MLK Jr., Martin Luther King Jr., writing in his letter from a Birmingham uh, jail. Uh, MLK suggests that in any nonviolent campaign, there are four basic steps. Uh, one is the collection of the facts to determine whether injustices exist, and two, negotiation. Uh, with the authorities that be the political authorities uh, once uh, it's been established that there have been acts of injustice. And then three, uh, there is a time, a process of self-purification. 
and and then the final step is direct action. But I want to really zero in on the uh, process of self-purification. According to MLK, when going through the process of self-purification, they would repeatedly ask themselves, I mean, he and the leaders of the civil rights movement would repeatedly ask themselves, are we able to accept blows without retaliating? Are we able to endure the ordeal of jail? Indeed, under the process of self-purification, MLK and the leaders used to simulate circumstances of extreme provocation in preparation for the direct action of marching in protest. Uh, the process of self-purification in the context of this passage involves praying for our enemies. Praying for our persecutors purifies us of any hatred. Although our enemies may control aspects of our socioeconomic and political well-being, what they do not have power over is our freedom to love or hate them. Um, prayer therefore becomes, um, prayer therefore uh, creates the condition for God to transform our hearts and orient us toward the hope of conversion for both ourselves and our enemies. Yeah. This is critical because many times people choose to quietly remain under the conditions of oppression because they have so internalized their oppression mm. that they lose their sense of self-worth. Yeah. For example, some abused spouses, and like last week we were talking about it, some abused spouses choose to stay married not really because they want to preserve God's idea of staying married, but because they have so internalized their abuse to the point that they have lost every iota of their, of their sense of self-worth. Hmm. Um, such people may pro invoke pro-marriage scriptures to convince themselves that staying in the abusive marriage will attract God's love and blessings. But that, that is obviously not the case. And so that time of self-purification, staying in prayer, can be a time where God sheds a light that, look, my child, uh, you must receive my love. And my love is not conditioned on ABC, that you remain in oppression. In fact, an aspect, in fact, an active part of my love is to draw you out. And so as to what happens to our enemies, we do not have any control. Yeah. Uh, we must certainly be hopeful that they would be transformed by our resolve to choose love over hate. But if that does not happen, at least our resolve to choose the way of love will expose the ugliness, the unjustness, and irrationality of the order that enables our oppressors. Um, and this, I want to use the example of Jesus. Through Jesus' death on the cross, the false peace, order, and justice that the Roman Empire promised to all its citizens uh, were exposed. And not just that, even the false sense of peace that the religious establishment uh, gave to its adherents, Jesus exposed that to be false. Why? Because it crucified the most just person to have ever lived on the face of this earth. Um, likewise, our resolve to love will shine a light on the ugliness of hatred. This is what MLK and the leaders of the civil rights movement used to rouse the conscience of America to pass the Civil Rights Act. Why this came about when Americans switched on their TV and saw people being battered on the streets for no reason, like they were just marching peacefully. And right there, people were saying, that, no, we can do better. Because why? When you take that uh, stance to love, even against hatred, people then tend to see that, wait a minute, 
this is not what we are supposed to do as humans. We need to love each other. So the desire of God, the Father, is obviously to reconcile all things to himself. Therefore, when we pray for our enemies, we embody this desire for cosmic reconciliation. Okay. And Jesus is, is our model in this, in this case. Yeah. Wow. Thanks a lot um, for those comments. Um, before I move to uh, Mariah, well, I just want to emphasize what, uh, some of the things that you've said. And um, I remember a quotation, but I'll just paraphrase it, uh, of one of my pastors, my former senior pastor of um, Grace Baptist, Reverend uh, Robert Asante. Uh, he, he says something like, um, the best way to deal with your en- enemy is to seek to destroy the enmity between you and them. Yeah. Uh, I will never That's forget true. that. And uh, that comes to... Uh, my, when we're looking at the prayer aspect, as you say, you, you, you just talked about it. Uh, when we pray, we purify ourselves of the bitterness. Eric also mentioned it, the bitterness, the enmity, the hatred that exists now. And I think it also affirms the point that our real enemy is not human. Um, yeah, so um, the ability to see the person and treat the person as an image of God and not treat the person as an enemy, as an embodiment of an enemy, comes when you prayerfully reflect on what is actually happening uh, between you and those people. And I, I think that's really what, what strikes me. When, and I remember I had a discussion with Jack. I didn't even mention it, but I, I, I mean, one of the blessings I have is that when people tell me good things, it stays in my heart. You know, <laughs> Jackson said something that uh, when I, I looked at, um, we were discussing Psalm 23. And then verse 5, we're talking about you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And I always looked at it like, okay, God will shame my enemy, will humiliate them, he will punish them. And I remember one time we were talking, and I think one point that you, you said was that God makes, I just paraphrase it, God makes it possible to, for you to have a table fellowship with your enemies. And it affirms, I mean, Proverbs 16, 7, that if a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemy to be at peace with him. And we understand that this also links to this idea that God directs people's hearts. He replaces the heart of stones with the heart of flesh. He will harden Pharaoh's heart for his purposes, and he can soften people's heart. So the whole idea that we, we understand that it can be selfish, it can be demonic, but we know it is not the human being. So we are praying that God will break the barrier and then enable us to really see the person. Like This is an image of God worthy of reconciliation, worthy of redemption. And so I am praying with the hope that as I embody the light of the world, as I embody the, the scriptures even to this person, this person will be convicted. Paul said that, you know, they will escape from uh, the snares of the enemy who has taken them captive to do his will. You know, that is what really happens. And I'm grateful for all these comments. It really helps me to understand. But Maria, I'm going to give you the uh, another difficult one that, um, I mean, I want to ask what makes it difficult for us to apply that. But also, you can also talk about, I mean, more especially talk about what can we do to make this part of our life? Because we, we have all acknowledged that this is a difficult thing. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely difficult. And like Eric, and, and Eric said a little bit about, um, you know, we're choosing life and we choose to obey in this area, which I thought was a great point. And um, I think too often we want what we want and we want it in our timing. And when, especially when it comes to our enemies, we fail big time with grace and humility. And too often what we are really looking for is, you know, 
justification in our actions toward another person when we've been hurt. Um, and so I think a lot of times we see a literal approach to an eye for an eye, but specifically in this passage, and we take that meaning um, and that phrase out of context because we don't want to be viewed as a, as a victim and we want to show that we can take care of others and ourselves. And I think in these moments, we totally forget about the direction that Jesus takes us here in this passage. And we focus solely on our own pride rather than our calling as followers of Jesus Christ. And I think that's why it makes it so difficult because we do get so hung up on um, what we deserve. And I think um, when it comes to fighting and disagreeing and battling with one another, um, for me, a lot of times my litmus test is, am I battling truth or am I battling a preference? Hmm. And because they're two separate things. And so if I'm battling a preference, um, is it Christ-like for me to, to have an enemy and hate others, you know, if it's over preference? Um, I mean, because this passage talks about God is sending the rain and he makes the sunrise for, for both the good and the evil. So for all of us, and it goes back to God loving them just as much as he loves me. But um, I think a little bit with what you just talked about, um, if, if there's an enemy over truth, um, then that's God's territory. That's, that's still not my territory. And when we're hurt or offended, um, you know, the mind can be consumed with thoughts of revenge and leaving very little space for God to come in with vengeance. Um, but we also know that vengeance is the Lord's. I mean, we're, the scripture talks very clearly about that. So for when a Christian's like mistreated um, over truth, which is often the case, um, and it was the case that I was thinking of when I was going over this passage as a Christian, um, when I'm being attacked over something that's for truth, um, then they're giving that, um, they're giving that hatred towards God. That, di that direction is not towards me, it's towards God. And then that actually puts it in God's corner. And so God works that out. And I don't need to be taking that on. Um, and God will do that. And that's hard to do. I mean, we've talked about the difficulty of it. And especially for me, I find this passage very difficult to follow through with, um, to let God take that on, um, on my behalf, even though that's um, where I need to, to lay myself is um, just to allow God to take this. And no matter the intensity of the hate that I feel, the intensity of um, I, you know, kind of who I've chosen to have as my enemy, what you guys have talked about um, beautifully, by the way, everyone. Um, I think that's kind of where I, I rest in this is I have to first question, is this over truth? Um, which is then it's based, it, it's towards God or is this over preference? And then is this worth me not coming under a humility and grace um, umbrella in this case? Um, so those are kind of my questions whenever I'm faced with, mm. with an enemy and who that enemy is. And if I've chosen just to have this enemy or if it's um, actually a legitimate case where I need to um, present this for the Lord. So that's kind of where I've fallen with this. And um, it is just difficult. And I think that's why um, Christians tend to not obey this command or take it literally to be able to justify their own actions. Because yeah. um, we choose not to choose life as, as Eric wonderfully said. So I think that was a really good point. Yes. Uh, thanks a lot. Um, great, great one there. Truth over preference. Oh, kept that one. Great. Uh, Eric. Um, yeah. Um, how, how, how can we, how can we make this one part of our lives? Yeah. I think uh, um, it is really difficult to obey this principle because um 
it is actually easy to do the opposite. That is an interesting thing. It's easy to do the opposite. Naturally, we are being wired to um, detest anything that is hostile to us. You know, um, it is said, I mean, it says somewhere in the Bible that the imagination of the thoughts of man's heart is continually wicked, right? So uh, people cannot but find themselves very prone to wishing um, evil on their enemies. Uh, you don't even need to look far when I'm talking about this thing or to understand what I'm trying to say. We see this behavior today, even in today's America, right? In my opinion, this is the thing. The struggle for peace, unity, and equality in today's America is not always about an erroneous political system or even a deficient cultural you know, ideology or whatsoever. I think that it is more of an inherent trait that you know, primarily seeks to first identify and validate the wrong or evil we see in others. And um, for me, I feel like, why? Because you know, it is the easiest thing to do. I can easily make an, en uh, an, an enemy. I can easily tag somebody as this person is somebody I hate. You know, but I must also admit that you know, loving and praying for those who hate us or despisefully use us is not easy. It is certainly not easy to turn the cheek, you know, the, the other cheek when one cheek is already hurting, right? So, however, the lesson here is that of recognition and acceptance. We need to be able to recognize and accept that. Um, and we also must come to terms with the fact that applying this rule is almost undoable, if not impossible, like Maria said, when, we are, when our sole aim is to repair our broken ego. Mm. You know, that will be more like living according to the ethics or morals of the old arrogant self. Mm. Unfortunately, this became the state of man after the fall, um, also before the introduction of salvation by Christ. You would think that salvation is enough, you know, um, to solve this problem. But the attitude of the believer suggests otherwise. So what we do is we choose to interpret our freedom based on the lens of the old arrogant self, which should not be the case. Rather, our attitude should be that of humility instead of pride. Mm. It is okay to be a Christian with some level of, you know, confidence and faith, believe in the things you fundamentally uh, subscribe to, right? Some little swagger. But, you know, rejoicing in your hope um, shouldn't uh, lead us to that place where we choose uh, or we lose sight of God's command that we should, we should honor his creation through respect. It's more or less about thinking about the respect we accord in God's creation uh, because he commands us to do that. Let me finish by saying that um, it is imperative that we become continually conscious of the struggle between our worldview and our identity in Christ. Mm. Uh, the way forward is to recognize that by applying this principle, we are doing more good to ourselves than harm. And mm. finally, I'll say that, you know, um, how does this speak? How can, how can we apply some of these things? I don't think that it is easy to just apply like that, like Maria talked about. In my opinion, I think that, you know, uh, we at least we've recognized that the rules in this passage is not just like a stroll in the park or like a world taco day for the Christian, right? So in other words, um, abiding by these principles means subscribing to some form of persecution since it can only be done through a deliberate and laborious effort. It's not easy. You are, if you are going to subscribe to this, then you should also know that you are also subscribing to, a, uh, subscribing to some level of persecution. Mm. You know, however, uh, there's one assurance we have in this passage as well, which I think I should bring, you know, to mind, that this very act is dear to our Father's heart. Mm. And by our engagement in it, we identify as true representatives of God's love among the people.
Okay, thanks a lot. Um, unfortunately, I thought we could do more, but uh, it's just about a time I need to round up. Uh, uh, great, great thoughts there. I've kind of, I feel satisfied <laughs> with, 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 with the thoughts I'm hearing. I'm afraid that God will help us uh, to apply that. Uh, few things that we all want to be perfect. We all want to be holy. Uh, Jesus said that unless your righteousness uh, super, I, I mean, supersedes or exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you will not inherit the kingdom. And now we want to be closer to God. Now Jesus is redefining or defining perfection for us. Uh, ability to shine or to love even when you are uh, hated or when you are facing your enemy. You know, makes you perfect before your Father. And for all of us who are yearning to get close to God and praying and, and even singing that God help me to be like you. This is one way that Jesus um, is recommending um, to all of us. And um, to end it, I would offer a prayer that Paul made for the Ephesian church. And uh, before I do that, you know, as Maria said, and all of us have um, said, this is not an easy thing. And one thing I've personally come to accept or acknowledge is that as believers, what we pray about most of the time is what is important for us or important to all of us. I mean, our prayer topics determine what really means much to us. So if you do a survey about people who are struggling with their enemies, one thing that you realize is that these people don't pray for them. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I mean if the person is praying, there's no way that, per that, that person or that issue will feature in the prayer. Okay, so that is why I'm beginning to understand the reason why Jesus said you should pray for them. Okay. Because prayer is your first expression of your commitment to do what he's saying. All right. So if you pray, you are telling God that this is important for me and I, I am willing to treat this person as um, a human being who deserves, you know, redemption and then, you know, the love of God. And so it's something that really works, you know, works when we, whenever we get on our knees. We are acknowledging that, one, this, we are willing to do that. And also we are acknowledging that we cannot do it. Okay, we cannot do it. This is something that is, uh, they normally say to err is human, to forgive is for divine. We acknowledge that this is a divine gift. This is something that comes from above. Uh, this is mercy. This is um, purity. This is peace making. That, that comes from above, you know. And so I, I believe that is one of the reasons why we need to pray. And so for this reason, for what we are talking about, Paul said this prayer, and I'll make it before I um, play our uh, theme song. And the theme song that talks about making, uh, allowing Jesus to make your heart his home. And Paul said, for this reason, I'm planting it into this context. In Ephesians 3, 14 to 19, for this reason, for this reason that we cannot do this without God, without praying. For this reason, so that I bow my knees um, to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner being, that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, the length, the depth, and the height, and to know the love of Christ which passes, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen. So God willing, next week we will continue. And I pray that 
Um, God will help us to embody the truth. Amen. Touch me.